Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Standing here today, speaking about the impact, line of duty death of one of our members. It's probably the most difficult thing I've had to do in my career. Loss of uh, Constable Shaylin Yang is immeasurable to her family, her friends, to all of her team members and colleagues. Her death while on duty and in service to our community is both senseless and tragic. Constable Shaylin Yang will always be remembered. Her service and sacrifice to our community will never be forgotten. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that was the voice of Chief Superintendent Graham Gorgandier of the Burnaby RCMP talking about the tragic stabbing death yesterday of Constable Shaylin Yang. Just three years on the job as a Mountie, trained in helping the most vulnerable members of society, and she laid down her life yesterday doing just that checking on a tent in a park in the city with a local bylaw enforcement officer. She ends up losing her life in the line of duty. And that is our first topic on the show this morning, this tragic, senseless, and needless death. we got some great guests coming up on this. Let's start first with Cash Heed, former West Vancouver police chief, former solicitor general, British Columbia, newly elected city councillor in Richmond. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. A pleasure to be on with you again. Thank you, Cash. I wish it was under better circumstances. Let's talk first of all about the risk that police officers take every day when they put that uniform on. I mean, you were a police officer yourself for many years. When you hear about a tragedy like this, what goes through your mind? A very sad set of circumstances, and the first thing I look at is, could this have been preventable? Every day in and day out, that police officers strap on their gun, put on that uniform, go out there to help the public. They expect to go home at the end of their shift, and they should go home at the end of their shift. We've got a situation here which it has hopefully hit the tipping point because this street disorder, this decay that is happening on our streets all over British Columbia are causing our police officers to really be concerned about their safety. If we're trying to attract the best people we can to policing, I'll tell you, an incident like this is troubling for so many families. Right, and police officers more and more are dealing with untreated mental illness, drug addiction, homelessness on the streets. And is what makes this so tragic, that this officer was trained to deal with the most vulnerable she still ends up losing her life. Let's listen to a little bit more of the chief superintendent here in Burnaby uh, talking about uh, Constable Shaylin Yang. Here is Graham Delongier, and then I'll get your thoughts. Constable Yang worked with her police mental health and homeless outreach team, where she was a valued member. Uh, working with mental health and homelessness can be challenging, but Shaylin embraced that job with passion. She found value working with this team and working with those struggling in our community. Can you, can you talk a little bit, Cash, about how officers are trained when they're on one of these mental health, health outreach teams or a homelessness outreach team? What kind of training do they go through and, and what kind of work do they do? 
Well, number one, their public safety and their safety is uh, paramount in anything they do. We're talking about a lot of conflict resolution skills that we give our people. She would have had most likely those type of skills given. But no matter what, Mike, when you're dealing with people that have extreme mental health issues, that have those emotional problems, no matter what training you get to try and resolve the situation, uh, tragedy does happen. And unfortunately, it happened here. And I strongly believe that there are policymakers that really need to give their heads a shake on what is going on. We've heard the divisiveness in this uh, last election here, not only in Vancouver, but elsewhere in British Columbia. But every community has these subjects in or around their public areas. And this is very concerning and it has to be dealt with. Speaking of Richmond City Councillor Cash Heed, BC's former Solicitor General, the reports seem to indicate that she was by herself here on this call. I mean, she apparently was assisting a local city bylaw enforcement officer on this call, but she was not with a partner or another police officer. Does that, does that concern you at all? It does, because my understanding it was a parks employee that she was assisting because of a uh, homeless person that seemed to be camped out in an area that he or she should not be in. And given the fact that uh, this has occurred, given the fact that, Mike, in talking to so many police officers in the last 24 hours, talking about the fact that they're scared for their safety because there are homeless camps, there are people that are camped out in public areas that have weapons. We've seized weapons off of people in Vancouver. We've seized guns off of people in Vancouver, machetes, knives, and all that. So this is another uh, warning that, Boy, are we ever dealing with a a chaotic situation on our streets. And not only the police safety is of paramount concern, but the public safety based on some of the stranger results that we've seen recently. Let's talk about that wake-up call that you mentioned a little earlier and whether this could be something that uh, contributes to change here. What do you think are the most sort of pressing problems and issues here? Is it like untreated mental illness that we see on the street? Well, it's ongoing. Uh, there is still no policymaker that's stepping to the forefront to deal with it, regardless of the level of government we have. We have a lot of finger pointing going on, saying it's someone else's responsibility. We had the law and order issue come to play in uh, Vancouver, where, in fact, we're talking about hiring more police officers. We're talking about hiring more mental health support workers. But at the end of the day, you've got an extraordinary amount of people with mental illness that are still wandering out there. We need to, and you've heard me say this before, look at the concept of institutionalizing these people. Look at the concept of opening up Riverview that we had for over 100 years here in British Columbia to deal with the psychiatric problems some of these people have. Mike, no matter what, social people can, social services people tell you, well, it's it's a combination of problems. The majority of people that are homeless on our streets have mental health or poly issues regarded relating to drug uh, addiction. I want to get into this on, <clears throat> on the open line here. We'll open the phone lines in just a moment. Cash, let me ask you quickly before our break about the continuing calls by some that more police officers are not the answer. We had a debate about this in the recent municipal election. The defund the police movement defund police, put more money into social services. I mean, this was a police officer who was specially trained to deal with people who are suffering from homelessness, mental addiction, drug addiction on the street. 
helping a local bylaw enforcement officer. She still ends up losing her life, even though she's a specially trained officer in this regard. What does that say to you about the need for, like, do we need more social services, more police officers, or a combination of both? You need a combination of both. But again, Mike, we can put as many resources on the street to deal with this, but unless we're able to take these people and deal with these people in a different way, unless we're able to reform what we're doing with them, we could hire 400 more police officers in Vancouver, and it may not make a difference. Mike, we need to take a comprehensive approach to dealing with this, and this is, yes, more police, yes, mental health support workers, more and more and more of a lot of things, create a balance, but have somewhere at the end of the day where these people can go for their supports, not stay on our streets and cause havoc. All right, we continue talking about the stabbing death yesterday of RCMP officer Shaylin Yang. My guest is Richmond City Councillor Kashid. Let's go right to your phone calls. Paul and Burnaby. Hi, Paul, go ahead. Yeah, hi, uh, Mike Cash. You know, I, I live, in, I'm born and raised in Burnaby, 64 years, not far from where this happened. And I, I'm partly responsible for this because... We haven't given direction to our politicians through elections that this problem needs to be corrected. And, you know, I saw a video called Vancouver is Dying. It's on YouTube. It's got three quarters of a million views right now, probably more, on this harm reduction, on how we're letting uh, a drug use be acceptable. And, you know, we're doing nothing about the mental issue at all. And, and, and you know, we have to change this. Because we're allowing our police officers to be on the front line, and, and we're not giving them solutions. We're just kind of shuffling things around, and they're the ones who are paying the price for it. And citizens, I had a guy stealing tools from my other property, and when I confronted him, he had a hatchet in his hand. By the time I called the police, he's gone. And, of course, we know, you know it's all about drug addiction. Okay. Now, I'm not sure how much of this is all mental issue. But drug addiction is a mental issue problem. Paul, thank you for the call. Cash, your thoughts? Quickly, uh, the poly issues are significant to hear, regardless if it's mental health or it's a drug addiction that we have to deal with. He's right in saying we have to have a groundswell from the constituents here in B.C. to get change because we've got to get rid of that silliness. And I don't do this often, but I watched question period yesterday, and all we had was the silliness from both sides of the house. What, what was silly that you heard? Well, one blaming the other, the other saying they're doing such a great job and blaming the others. They're living in the past, Mike. They're not working together to deal with what our problems actually are. Let's go to Coral calling from Maple Ridge. Hi, Coral, go ahead. Hi, I just wanted to say that I actually am a mental health outreach worker um, out in the community. And I just, I find it kind of odd that the officer was by herself. I mean, with a bylaw officer, sure, but there should have been another mental health worker with her or another police officer, especially going into an area where you don't know that person. And it's just an odd situation of the person being in a tent. Um, But I can say, like, everything in this industry, our healthcare workers are just done, like, it's hard to find mental health workers. I'm on mat leave right now, and my there's some of my positions still vacant. So there's definitely an, there's definitely an issue out there. Carl, thank you, thank you for the call. Cash, we touched earlier on on the issue of whether this police officer was by herself. She appears to have been by herself here with a a local a municipal bylaw enforcement officer. 
Like, is that typical for RCMP to respond like a single officer? Well, they're deployed single officers, but usually they do have cover if the circumstances are such that they need it, they will request that cover unit to be there. I'm sure they'll do their review on this and determine what some of the problems are, but it does not take away from the issue that we've got these people on our streets walking around. Your caller, Paul, talked about the he approached a guy and he had a machete in his hand. Those are things that are very concerning. Bob in Nanaimo. Hi, Bob. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning, guys. Yeah. I just like to say that uh, mental health addictions don't have an end date. As a, as a retired mental health worker, I agree with Cash and, and, and other voices in the community that, that we need to have facilities in, in a humane way. Is that, that yeah. we have to understand that not everybody gets out alive, that some people are going to require supports for their whole life. I developed programs for corrections for a number of years working with long-term offenders what I discovered was is that when they would come out of the federal penitentiaries, um, we would get them into work. We would start to develop programs for them and saw great results. But the problem was is there was an end date. They were 30, 60, 90 days, six-month right. programs. And, and that would run out. Those people would be back in the streets or in the crack shacks in no time. We have to, as a society, understand, in my opinion, that we can't put end dates, that we don't have situations where people take decades to get into these positions. We can't expect to get them out of them in 30, 60, 90 days. Bob, that thank you for my point. Thank you for the call. Cash, your thoughts? A continuum of care is absolutely required for drug addiction, mental health issues, and so many of the other issues out there right now. But we don't have that continuum. He's exactly right. We have these programs 30, 60, 90, and they just default back to their previous behavior. Squeeze in one more call. We've got a lot of calls here. Deb in Delta. Deb, you got about 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. Oh, hi. Um, Yeah, I just want to say that everybody that's called in is just right on uh, track. You know, we just, there's physical health to have hospitals, mental health, we need hospitals as well. And uh, it's going to be the breakdown of our society if we don't get this <clears throat> under control. Yeah, thank you for the call. I remember, Cash, Riverview was originally shut down over concerns of human rights issues, abuse of uh, patients in these large facilities. Should that, I don't think that should necessarily, you know, completely disqualify the idea of opening up. A, a modern facility. We've got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Absolutely. You've got to remember, Riverview was uh, established in 1913. It was the Socred government in the early 80s that decided to close it down, and it finally shut its doors on 2012. I'm not saying you have to open that exact facility, but you're exactly yeah. right. A contemporary facility to deal with these people that are causing havoc and chaos to society. Ash, thank you for coming on today. Pleasure. Let's keep talking about our top story on the show today, the death of RCMP officer Shaylin Yang, stab, fatally stabbed yesterday in the line of duty. This is a young police officer who was trained to help the most vulnerable in our society, people who are homeless, mentally ill, on the streets, in our parks, and she laid down her life doing her job yesterday. Have a listen to Burnaby Mayor Mike Hurley here about these uh, outreach teams for the homeless. Have a listen. We have a team that uh, that goes in and tries to tries to discuss uh, the issues with the the people in the parks. Try to recommend that they go to a shelter 
introduce them to the people who look after shelters in Burnaby. Unfortunately, given the, the number of homeless in the lower mainland, that just means you're moving them 500 yards down the street. Okay. In this case, this police officer was accompanying a local bylaw enforcement officer. She ends up laying down her life on the job yesterday. Let's discuss it now with my guest, BC Liberal Leader Kevin Falcon, Leader of the Opposition at the Legislature in Victoria. Kevin, thank you for coming on. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Okay, these are tragic circumstances today. What are your thoughts on this this young police officer losing her life? Oh, Mike, honestly, yesterday I uh, I couldn't even really talk about it. I mean, we have two former RCMP officers in our caucus. You know, um, one of them just recently finished policing in Surrey, as you know, uh, Eleanor Sturko. And, and Mike Morris has two sons that are currently in the RCMP. And I can tell you, every police officer across the province uh, I am certain, was immediately thinking about their families, their children, their loved ones, and the risks they take every day going out to protect us. And this young woman, Shaylin Yang, is, it just, it's horrific. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, it's hard, Mike. It's really, really hard. Would you describe this as an, like an unnecessary death, like a senseless death? I, I don't really want to, I mean, any time a police officer is killed, it is absolutely an unnecessary death. And uh, I, but, but I really just don't want to. Uh, we, we'll have a bigger discussion about what this means in, in the broader context, but I just am yeah. really cautious not to want to uh, play any form of uh, politics at all over this horrible tragedy. Well, let's talk about the larger context of the situation here. We've been talking earlier on the show today about the problems that we're all seeing on the streets of Metro Vancouver, the homelessness, the untreated mental illness on the streets, the, the drug addiction, untreated drug addiction. What needs to be done in, in that regard? Let's talk about mental illness, for example. You've been outspoken on that. What needs to be done about people who are mentally ill on the street? Sure. And yeah, and Mike, and I've been talking about this for two years now, even before I, uh, you know, came back into to public life again, I wrote an op-ed piece and said, listen, I think we have to recognize a society that, you know, 30 odd years ago when the social credit government first made the decision to close down the mental institutions, that's what they called them back then, places like Riverview, Essendale, Tronquille, up in Kamloops, um, the decision was made uh, on with, with I'm sure the best of intentions, the idea was that the folks were going to receive real community support and, uh, you know, uh, help them transition back into the community. The reality is proper supports were never there. And all governments, including the one I was part of, including the current one, including, you know, all the way back to social credit, have to accept our share of responsibility. The issue to me now is we have to acknowledge this has failed and totally failed. And we now have people wandering the streets with severe mental illness uh, that are untreated, that have no ability to look out for their own self-interest, are often exploited and abused by drug dealers and others. And, and this is unacceptable. And so what I've said is that we need to reopen, reopen modernized versions of Riverview, apartment-like settings with proper 24-7 psychiatric and medical supports, and make sure that these folks get the care and attention they deserve. After all, they are somebody's child, son, daughter, loved one, spouse, parent, whatever the case may be, and they deserve a lot better. And I'll tell you this, it will be a big investment. I'm prepared to make it should I become the premier of this province because I'll tell you there will be enormous savings 
in the judiciary, in the ju- justice system, in policing, and all of the uh, you know the affiliate, uh, affiliated costs, including health care, well, that are associated with these folks. Well, as, as you mentioned, you know your party was in power for 16 years. You're a former health minister. Like when you look back now, do you ever recall like when you were health minister, anyone? putting a plan in front of you, like maybe we should reopen these large institutions. The situation now I think is worse than what it was at at that time. But was that ever an option that your government considered? Well, what we did is we went ahead and built the Burnaby Center for, for mental health and addictions to start to, you know, treat these kind of situations. But, um, you know, frankly, it, it wasn't enough. Uh, And I think that a much more ambitious and aggressive approach is needed Um, you know, especially for those that have severe mental health issues. Now, there's a lot of folks, you know, many of our friends and family that will have milder versions. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's some depression. They're going through a stressful period of time. A lot of those issues can be dealt with by supporting, you know, the psychologist and psychiatry professions, uh, making sure that they are being utilized and and made part of, uh, you know, a team-based approach around family physicians so that it's what we call a warm handoff from the doctor to the psychologist that may be working in the office to help some of those folks that struggle uh, with mental health issues from time to time. That's very normal. I think we have to get over the stigma of mental health being, you know, something we can't talk about. It is just, it's no different than when you have a broken leg uh, and you're dealing with some mental health issues, They just we just need to make sure the appropriate treatment's there for folks. Speaking to Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, we've been discussing the stabbing death yesterday of RCMP officer Shailen Yang. Let's talk a little bit more about one of the other major issues when it comes to crime in our in our province, in our city, and that is the, the prolific offender issue. So let's talk a little bit about this this guy who was once again uh, been was released only to reoffend uh, Mohammed Majidpour, 35 year old, who had been charged with uh, assault on a young woman, hitting her over the head with with a pole, and in an apparently random attack, released again. There was a lot of complaints that he had been released again. Then he's rearrested hours after his release. Let's listen to this report from Global News. Global News uh, anchor Colleen Christie. Freedom didn't last long for a Vancouver man with a long and troubled history with the law. Mohammed Majidpour has a long rap sheet recently, including accusations of uttering a racial slur and hitting a 19-year-old woman with a pole. Majidpour was arrested Saturday and released from jail Sunday. At around 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon, the same officers who arrested him Saturday spotted Majidpour near Maine and Hastings. They followed him to a store in the downtown core where they say Majidpour stole $330 worth of leggings. Kevin Falcon, your thoughts? Well, this is exactly what we've been talking about. And, you know, quite frankly, I'm, I'm getting to the point now, Mike. I, I've been talking about this since I became leader. We've raised it in the legislature multiple times. The catch and release program that David Eby uh, has been overseeing as attorney general for five years, and now he's going to be the next premier, is a disaster. And this is just yet another example. Now, keep in mind that Majidpour, uh, just last year, was the individual that was stalking a woman for over half an hour through Chinatown, uh, you know, yeah. scaring this poor young woman to death. And, and here he is hitting another 19-year-old, a young 19-year-old Asian female over the head with a steel pipe. You know, I mean, this is, and then to be released, like, almost immediately, and within two hours, uh, you know, already out committing more crimes. I mean, this is ridiculous. It just brings the whole 
system of justice into disrepute. We've, you, we've been, as far as six months ago, we've said to David Eby, bring in dedicated Crown prosecutors for prolific offenders like this. And secondly, to give direction to Crown counsel that the interests of the public safety should take precedent over the interest of that repeat criminal offender to go back and, and get freedom. I, I understand you consistently blaming it on EB, but does this not fall more in the realm of federal jurisdiction? I mean, it's the federal it's federal responsibility for the criminal code. It's federal responsibility for for bail policy in the in the country. What can nope. isn't it more to the feds? Go ahead. No, no. This is what the NDP is trying to say. Now, this is a dodge that they're they're trying to use, and and they've they've tried this in different ways. First of all, they said, "Oh, it's the federal government's fault. It's Bill C seventy five that was passed in yeah. twenty nineteen." Well, just keep in mind, Mike, that the current Attorney General and multiple members of this current NDP caucus used to be members of Parliament for the NDP back when that bill was being debated. And you know what? They voted against it because they didn't think it was lenient enough. They actually wanted it to be more lenient than it currently is. And so this idea that it's all about Bill C-75 is nonsense. That is part of it, for sure. But they have the ability to give direction to Crown to say that when you're looking at repeat violent offenders, we call them prolific offenders, that you can, in fact, say, we want you to take the interest of public safety over the right of that individual to be released back into the public. That is is making sure that the public is protected so that the administration of justice does not fall into disrepute. It's been done in the past. They could easily do it. They refuse to do it. And I would argue the reason why is because David Eby's background prior to getting elected was he was the guy with Pivot Legal Society that wrote the manual how to sue the police. And I still, by the way, because I've been around for a while, Mike, remember that when he headed up the VC Civil Liberties Union, which he did after Pivot Legal Society, he was the one that their members were harassing the police when they were trying to stop those anarchists from rioting uh, during the Olympics by following them around with pens and pencils and saying that we're going to, oh, don't, don't you dare touch them or we're going to be suing you, etc. So I think there's a mentality there in David Eby and the NDP that ideologically want to spend more time worrying about the rights of, of criminals and ignoring the rights of the community to be safe. Last, que- last question for you. While I have you, Later on the show, I'll have Anjalia Potterai on the show running for the NDP leadership. It appears now she will be disqualified against for, uh, for running against EB. Her campaign will be disqualified for the NDP leadership. You've been talking about this. T- your thoughts on it? Well, we, we've been saying for weeks that the fix was in, that the NDP establishment was going to drive this young woman of color out of their leadership race. I think it uh, makes a mockery of the Democratic part of their name, the new Democratic Party. If they're so Democratic Party, why are they afraid of a race? You know, I competed in a leadership race where we had uh, in, an Indigenous candidate, a woman. We had a, someone with Chinese background. We had youth. We had all kinds of uh, individuals competing. And the fact that the NDP would drive her out of this race, I think, is, does a big disservice to well, allowing her to have her voice. And frankly, the reason they're doing it is because they were worried she was going to win. And this well, is about them getting behind uh, David Eby and making sure he gets a coronation instead of a race. Kevin, you had Aaron Gunn, the the right-wing commentator on online. He's got like a, over a million views of his videos on Facebook and elsewhere. He tried to run for the liberal leadership, and you guys just disqualified him too. 
It was the same yes, thing. But keep, no, well, keep in mind, he applied to be a candidate. And when they reviewed uh, his record and some of his past statements, the leadership organizing committee made it clear that some of that commentary was totally contrary to the values that we have as a party. And that's the reason why he wasn't allowed to even apply. Now, she, in her case, did apply. Her application was accepted. She paid her fees. She signed up, uh, I'm told, uh, over 10,000 new excited members that wanted to have a say in this race. And, uh, and they're going to toss her out because of that. Very different situation. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Let's talk about one of the worst kept secrets in B.C. politics here right now, and that is the looming disqualification of Anjali Apaterai from the NDP leadership contest. A lot of people saw this coming. There's a lot of predictions this was going to happen. The environmental activist taking on David Eby for the top job in the NDP signed up a ton of members. And it looked like Eby's cakewalk here to power was uh, being challenged here quite effectively by her. An investigation now by the party uh, appears to signal that the party will disqualify her campaign. This report from the NDP has been widely leaked to the media here in the last 24 hours. Uh, the report says that the campaign broke campaign rules by improperly coordinating with other groups, including the Dogwood Initiative, major environmental group in B.C. Yeah, it looks like she's going to be kicked out. I've got one of her key supporters, Avi Lewis, standing by. Have a listen to Anjali Apaterai here speaking to me in an earlier show about all the people she signed up to support her and why she th- thinks this is actually a good thing for the party. Here's what she said to me. When people switch parties to become a member of, of a different party, I see that as a good thing. And I am, I'm very happy that they're that my campaign and my candidacy has drawn a lot of people who vote green back to the NDP. Okay, well, she sees it as a good thing. Party did not see it that way. It looks like she will certainly be disqualified here in the contest. Let's discuss it now with Avi Lewis, one of her key supporters. Avi is a former federal NDP candidate. He's a filmmaker and activist. Avi, thanks for coming on again. Hey, Mike. Nice to be here. Okay, thanks a lot for doing it. Last time I talked to you on the show, you you had a feeling, a gut feeling, this was this was happening that she was going to be disqualified by the party brass here. Your thoughts on what's going on? Well, I think it's absolutely heartbreaking, and it risks tearing the party apart, and uh, it risks handing a uh, tainting the administration of uh, of the new premier and handing a cudgel to our political opponents. It's unnecessary, and I I think it's a uh, I think it's been a really unfair process, and I think the public would judge it to be one if they got deep in the weeds uh, the way that it's being done. Okay, well, everyone is, a lot of people have seen this report now that was put together by Elizabeth Cull, who was the appointed to oversee this leadership process. It's a quite a detailed report that criticizes her campaign for, for alleged rule breaking. What do you think about the allegations in this report? Did you guys break the rules? No. No, we followed them. Uh, the campaign followed them as closely as, as possible. Mm-hmm. The rules, Mike, the rules changed in the course of the campaign. Um, and uh, they were this new interpretation of uh, making campaigns responsible for third party activity was introduced 
you know, at the end of August and then applied retroactively to uh, to events that happened weeks earlier, like uh, this Zoom call, which I encourage everybody to watch if it's floating around online, where Anjali decided in real time uh, um, after listening to a whole bunch of folks from all kinds of different uh, organizations and, um, you know, and from the climate movement and other social justice movements generally, everybody was expressing huge interest in her doing this thing. And at the end of the call that I was on, I was like, so are you in? Are you doing this? And she said, I've heard this amazing outpouring and I'm in. I'm going to be, I'm going to run, I'm going to run. I'm going to throw my hat in. That's the very first time that she actually indicated that she was definitely going to run. And we, that's when her campaign started. She didn't have any staff. She didn't, you know, she, it, and, and, and struggled for the first couple of weeks. Cause at that point it was only 25 days before the deadline for selling new memberships. And so it's what the real story here is that she, she signed up thousands, maybe more than 10,000 new members uh, who were attracted to the NDP because of her politics, because of ambitious climate action, because of, you know, like a, a, a really progressive offer uh, that addressed a lot of things that people had been disappointed in the NDP government with. Uh, reversing the position on LNG, on old growth, on, on Site C, things that people right. have, you know, have a lot of complaints with within the party. Okay, so well, that's, I'm t- that's the story, right? And, and, and just one more thing, Mike. Yeah. The party has never told us how many new memberships were sold. I think it's time for the party to come clean and actually tell the public how many people signed up for Unjali because they, went on a, they, they then went on a, a, a hunt to find yeah. reasons to disqualify as many of those members as they possibly could. And it seems to me that when they realized they couldn't possibly disqualify that many thousands of members that she'd sold more than her opponent, they decided to just disqualify one, and that's her. Speaking to Avi Lewis, he's one of the key supporters for Anjali Potterai. Her looming disqualification here is a candidate to lead the NDP. So, Avi, I'm taking a look at this widely leaked report uh, recommending that Anjali be disqualified here, and it zeroes in on activities by so-called third-party organizations or outside groups, notably the Dogwood Initiatives, a major environmental group in B.C., and says that this this group was organizing on her behalf, coordinating and promoting membership signups for her campaign, and looking precisely at the wording of this report, it says this raised concerns about unlawful contributions to the campaign, that these were basically in-kind donations to the campaign. So how is that not against the rules? I mean, if you've got a major organization like the Dogwood Initiative signing people up for her, how is, how is that not against the rules? Well, look, in B.C., third parties in elections, and remember, the Elections Act is written for general elections. It's not written specifically for leadership campaigns within a party. The only thing that it, that it regulates within leadership campaigns is donations, right? So yeah. it, it, it's not a perfect fit to just read the Elections Act and apply it to a leadership campaign. There has to be a process of interpretation. And the thing is that the, so <laughs> it's a little, I don't know how, to, how deep to go into the weeds here. Bottom line is third parties are completely allowed to communicate with their members. They're allowed to endorse candidates. Yeah. They're allowed to uh, you know, communicate with their members for, to get them involved in leadership races. It happens all the time. This is normal. You're not allowed to coordinate. And Anjali's campaign didn't coordinate. What happened was that uh, on August 31st, uh, Elizabeth Cole published a bulletin 
that effectively, like an uh, interpretation of how the elections BC rules apply in a leadership race, that tried to make campaigns responsible for what third parties do. And that was a new interpretation. We didn't have that information before August 31st. There's no way the campaign could have known that in advance. So as soon as she issued that, the campaign made every effort, took action to comply with that. But the problem is she then applied it retroactively, going back to events weeks before. And, you know, here's a weird thing. Under the NDP's rules, the CEO does actually have the power to change the rules of the leadership contest in the middle of the race, which is kind of unsettling. But, you know, is, is there is there any that, but she can't do it retroactively, Mike. Is there she any doubt? Is there any doubt in your mind that what? So you think this was some sort of trumped up interpretation of rules or changing rules deliberately to disqualify her and protect EB? I think the party was in a real pickle. They 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 let the membership drop after five years in government. The membership yeah. of the NDP in British Columbia was only eleven thousand people, and I know that there were old timers in the party saying, "What's the plan to increase the membership if there's a contested leadership race?" Like. And, and the party, I think, was very blasé about that. And the reason the membership was so low is that they made decisions in government that lost them members. Um, and they didn't uh, send signals to those members to come back. And along okay. comes a candidate who, who, who goes back to those traditional values uh, and says this, you know, come back. And, and, and we're going to do, if I'm premier, we're going to do things differently. And then they were confronted with this huge volume of new memberships, which are totally legitimate. They're people who signed up to be part of a political party because they were drawn to the leadership candidate. This happens all the time. Every leadership race in every party, in every jurisdiction, people join the party for that candidate. If that candidate doesn't win, they're not that interested in that party, some of them. And some Let of them me... stick around and become activists. Like Jugmeet signed up <laughs> thousands and thousands of new members when he ran uh, for leadership of the federal NDP, and everybody celebrated it. And he won on the first ballot because of this avalanche of new members that came into the party for them. Well, I think I think this party brass was afraid of Anjali Potter potentially winning a first ballot a victory here. But let me play a clip here for you from David Eby uh, on an earlier show. I asked him about this whole drama and whether he felt that Anjali Potter your candidate, should be disqualified. Listen now, he, he kind of dances around with his answers here. I try to press him down. Let's listen to this exchange and I'll get your thoughts. Here's David Eby. Do you think her name should be on the ballot and people, the members of your party should be allowed to vote for her if they want? She should not hey, be disqualified? I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about the leadership race. It gives me a chance to talk about ideas like this housing plan. Okay, well, what about my question, though? Do you think her name should be on the ballot? You have you have oh, no fear yeah, going yeah, against I, her, right? I mean, I think we should, I think we should have a, a leadership race. I think there's a benefit to to taking stock where we're at, to looking at new ideas, and uh, and I feel good about where my campaign is at, and I look forward to the debate. Right, and she should not be disqualified by the party. Well, that would make it hard to have the race, Mike. I understand she's okay. uh, possibly the only other candidate. Uh, okay, so he sort of appeared to suggest <laughs> that maybe she should be allowed no, to run, no, but your no, thoughts? No, no, Mike, he said, he said it. You, uh, I, I think he was really clear, and you were trying to make it seem like he wasn't saying it. He was saying it, let's have a race. Let's yeah. let the members decide. This is a democracy. Democratic is in the middle of the party's name. Let's let the members decide. And I think Dave's housing plan is awesome. Dave is a really good guy. I think he, you know, we should have a fair race and a contest of ideas. That's what's been happening in this party since my dad and my grandpa were, you know, in the, in the business from the 1930s to the 1970s. Um, yeah. This is what this party is about. 
Let's have let's have the debate. And Dave is well equipped to debate. He's an excellent debater. And I think he'd do really well in a leadership race. But all the party members want is to let the race go ahead. And I think it's tragic and still avoidable uh, because the party doesn't actually lock this decision down until the provincial executive meets to vote on it tonight at uh, around six, I think. So they should they should vote against the recommendation and let's have the race. All right, a little snowbird action there for you from the one and only Ann Murray. All right, lots of B.C. snowbirds getting set to migrate south for the winter, getting set to take wing and fly off to warmer climes. Lots of B.C. snowbirds do this. I know people who go to Arizona, got some friends who like to go to Mexico, live the winter months down there it's so warm right now unseasonably so in october maybe not getting set to take wing right away but eventually i guess we're going to get winter here maybe in november or later and lots of people start to head south before the winter check this out though some of the more popular destinations for canadian snowbirds of course in the united states but some indications now that uh, the cost of living in the U.S., having uh, some snowbirds thinking of other destinations like Mexico, like Central America. Got Omar Kwan standing by to discuss this. Have a listen to Susan Harper here, the Canadian Consul General in Miami, why Canadians like going down to the warmer temperatures. Have a listen. Canadian snowbirds are people who don't just come for a short visit, but who come and stay for an extended period. Some of those people rent, some of those people own, but what they have in common is they stay for an extended period more than just a week or two. Oh, must be nice, must be nice. But are some people looking at other destinations for their snowbird getaway. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Omar Kwan. Omar is a travel insurance expert. He's co-founder of Goose Insurance. Hey, Omar, thanks for coming on today. No worries. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. What are the most popular destinations for Canadian snowbirds if, let's say, they're going to the United States? I mean, for a lot of people in B.C., it's got to be Arizona, right? Very popular. Exactly. Arizona, parts of California... You know, we're talking about Sacramento and and outskirts of that. Um, uh, Nevada is also another sort of destination for a lot of BC-based uh, um, snowbirds who actually have a home, or they they might have um, uh, like a, a home sharing sort of uh, situation. Uh, but Arizona and Palm Springs are definitely sort of the top destinations for a lot of uh, BC residents. Uh, what we've also been seeing in the States is Florida as another top destination in terms of U.S. Um, across the board for Canadians, but uh, also starting becoming more popular for um, Canadians. Okay, for a lot of snowbirds, though, as they take a look at those destinations, a, a lot of a lot of factors weighing on their mind right now, especially with the inflation that we've seen. We've got a weaker Canadian dollar, the price Correct. of accommodations, groceries, dining out. It's all risen, particularly south of the border, when you've got a weak Canadian dollar. How is that impacting the travel plans of Canadians? What are you hearing? 
what we're seeing from our customers is, um, you know, they're, we have our loyal customers who are returning back to us for their travel insurance needs who have homes in the States. And some of them actually are going to uh, visit their homes and, 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 and for the first time after a couple of years. Uh, and then we also have some Canadian snowbirds who are really reconsidering U.S. as a destination, which used to be their primary destination because of the factors that you mentioned. Um, I think both cost of living and inflation is definitely a driver, but um, I think the currency exchange is also a big a, a big one right now because it's just, you know, the Canadian dollar being so weak. So um, we're seeing a lot of Mexico um, destinations pop up. We're seeing Costa Rica. Um, I think Central America is very popular, but Costa Rica is definitely a top destination that we're seeing a lot of Canadian snowboards consider and you know as susan was mentioning in that little expert that you played um it's a typically canadian snowboards travel travel for an extended period of time but what we're seeing this year for those who are not going to the states is that they're actually going for shorter destination uh shorter um trips sorry oh really shorter trips why is that um i think just because you know they 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 want to be able to save money i think um uh this potential recession you know this economic downturn that we've been hearing in the news is definitely impacting so we're definitely seeing a bit of a uh, a slight uh, um, decrease in total trip durations for particularly for those who are going to costa rica or mexico or any destination outside of us okay it's interesting to see these trends especially for people who had love Arizona or maybe Palm Springs, like you mentioned, and now maybe thinking about, well, hang on, maybe there's a cheaper option here. Mexico, Costa Rica, you mentioned. What about Belize? Is that a hot destination right now? I keep seeing Belize pop up. Yeah, we've been seeing a lot of Belize pop up as well. Um, from our customer base, we've heard maybe a few saying Belize, that's their destination, but we haven't really seen it here. We haven't really heard a lot from our customer base, but I know in the news, Belize has definitely been sort of a top destination that we've been hearing from uh, from Canadian snowbirds. But um, the reality is that, you know, everything is changing. And, and what we're also seeing in terms of purchase of, of travel insurance products is that, you know, Canadian snowbirds and rightfully so have always been sort of considering travel medical insurance, which is continuing to be top yeah. of mind. What we're seeing is them asking for higher limits uh, or making sure that their policy has a higher limit of coverage. Um, unstable pre-existing medical condition is becoming more important than ever before, um, especially for some Canadian snowbirds who had um, uh, COVID or had gotten a couple rounds of COVID in the last uh, let's say six months to a year. Um, but what we're also seeing is a lot of questions being asked about non-medical travel insurance packages, which was really never kind of top of mind for a lot of Canadian snowbirds. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of questions being asked about trip cancellation, trip interruption, cancel for any reason benefits, um, because people are just not feeling 100% sort of, you know, uh, great whether their trip will happen or not. There's a lot right. of flight delays, flight cancellations, shortage of staff, so on and so yeah. forth. So they do, they are considering these other non-medical <laughs> products as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's very wise for people to be, make sure your your insurance is rock solid here if you're going to spend a lot of time out, out of the country for sure. Like when, when you help out your customers, like, what about your Canadian benefits, like your Medicare benefits, or maybe if you if you have a prescription drug plan, 
any kind of pharmacare coverage. Does any of that uh, continue to cover you outside of Canada, typically? Um, typically, no. I mean, uh, you know, your 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 basic MSP plan with British Columbia, particularly, will cover you for you know, uh, I think maximum seventy five dollars per day, and I think there's a uh, there's a top limit to it. The reality is that if you're going to the U.S., an average hospital bed just for the night is twelve thousand uh, dollars. If you're going to Mexico, you're probably looking at four thousand, five thousand, or something along those lines. So. You know, these coverages that are essentially offered with your base plan are not necessarily going to cover you. And you're, if, and if you don't choose to buy these, um, uh, these travel insurance products for your trip, you are basically putting yourself at financial risk. I mean, travel yeah. medical insurance is top of mind and has been for Canadian snowbirds for a number of years. And especially now with COVID-19, even Canadian snowbirds who are just crossing the border, uh, you know, and, and taking their RV, um, and they're still at financial risk and they do want to consider uh, and they are considering uh, COVID-19 uh, insurance packages, but particularly travel medical. All right. Calling all snowbirds. Call me on the open line if you spend time south of the border, out of the country during the winter months. Where do you travel to? Do you head down to Arizona, California, other destinations? How about Mexico or Central America? 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. My guest is Omar Kwan. He's a travel insurance expert. Goose Insurance. Phil and Coquitlam on the open line. Hi, Phil. Go ahead. Yeah, morning, guys. Uh, first week of January, heading down to uh, Southern Caribbean, going on a cruise for eight days. I'm just wondering about, uh, well, good place to get insurance, I guess, goose insurance. But uh, I'm in Coquitlam, so wondering about BCAA. I've got a uh, Avion Visa card. I'm just wondering what they're, what you know about uh, credit card coverages as well. Omar, what would you say to him? Uh, well, we're a Vancouver-based company, so feel free to give us a call here at Goose Insurance, and we have licensed agents who can help you and answer your questions. When it comes to credit card coverages, though, please be careful because um, credit card coverages typically have a lot of limitations and exclusions uh, in them. So for anybody who has pre-existing uh, medical conditions, whether they're stable or non-stable, um, you know, they will not cover. They have trip length limits. They have uh, their their medical coverage in total has some uh, pretty strict limits. Um, your your like I said, your overall uh, total trip duration. But again, every single credit card is different. So uh, yeah. one thing that you know a Goose license agent can do is review the policy wording of your credit card, yeah. uh, as well as um, sort of compare it to what we have here at Goose and advise you accordingly. Yeah, get the insurance. Like one thing I've learned is don't don't scrimp on it. Like I used to do some traveling and think like, well, if I'm buying everything on my credit card, I'm covered with travel insurance. But I, I've heard some horror stories, uh, so I think it's always best to make sure you got the coverage well, you the need. Thing, yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. I think the, the thing that's really important to understand is credit card insurance is for everybody who gets that credit card. They're not particularly for you, Mike, or for myself, Omar. You know, we do. We're different. Our medical conditions are different. Our destinations different. Our yeah. uh, trip length is different. So our ages are different. So there's a lot of things that are important to to consider when you're buying travel medical insurance. Whereas yeah. the credit card is for everybody, and it's really a base basic coverage. I mean, most credit cards 
don't cover you more than two or three days. They have a very low mm-hmm. limit, uh, like 50,000 or 100,000. And if you're hospitalized for a week in mm-hmm. states, that's really not going to take you that far no. if you're covered, that is. Mario and Burnaby. Hi, Mario. Go ahead. Oh, hi there. I was going to ask you, how come nobody brings up Cuba? <clears throat> Any of your clients go to Cuba, Omar? Uh, some, but we haven't really heard. It just hasn't been a top destination for, for our clients, but I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are considering that as a destination. Um, we just haven't seen that in our trends. I mean, what we're seeing a lot of is Mexico and Costa Rica. Those are the two top destinations for our clients who are not traveling to the U S uh, this year. Let's go to Neil on the line in Kelowna. Hi, Neil, go ahead. Hey Mike, Omar, um, the airlines want me to buy insurance through them. Like, do you want to protect this trip? But is that for only the day of the flight, or is that for the whole trip if I'm booking one-way tickets because I found cheaper deals on different airlines? Again, typically, I wouldn't recommend buying any kind of insurance, whether it's medical or non-medical, right, when you're booking your flight. I think what's important is to review the coverages that you want to purchase, whether that's from Goose or from somewhere else, it's really important for you to review those coverages and make sure that they're adequate. Um, again, they're standalone. Um, for example, some policies out there have embedded benefits, like the one with Goose has a flight delay. Even if you buy the medical package with us, um, you still have a flight delay benefit attached to it. So it's really important to do price shopping, but also more importantly, benefits and understand yeah. that. You, what benefits you're getting and what exclusions are. I wouldn't be rushed to buy a medical policy while I'm booking a flight. Um, I just wouldn't feel great about it personally. Squeeze in one more call here, Brad and Langley. Hey, Brad, you got about 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. Yeah, hi, guys. Uh, just a question. I'm planning on a trip to France next year for a couple of months. Um, hmm. I'm wondering about the age. I'm going from 61. I'll be 62 on there. Does that age change cause a big increase in my in cost insurance. Omar, I got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Um, unfortunately, age is a big factor in travel uh, medical policies. Um, one thing that we would recommend with Goose is to buy it in advance. If you buy it now, you can buy travel policy with Goose a year in advance. Um, so you can buy it now and take the savings and cover yourself for your future trip uh, next year. Um, and in terms of age limit, just overall, Goose does not have an age limit, so we can cover uh, anybody at any age. Omar, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Mike.